We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Today on the WSJ Media Mix podcast, we speak with Jason Stein, CEO of Laundry Service, about how Donald Trump ran a better campaign than most marketers, how media and advertising are converging, and the future of Snapchat and television. Welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast, bringing you interviews and analysis with people that matter in the fast-changing media business. Hello and welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm Stephen Perlberg. As always, I'm here with Jack Marshall. Jack, what's up? Not much, Steve. I'm doing good. Uh, that's good. Uh, we're, we're joined this week. We have a really exciting episode, I'm sure. It's going to be awesome with uh, Jason Stein. He's the founder and CEO of Laundry Service, uh, which... Uh, is a sort of social media advertising agency. He's also uh, in charge of Cycle. It's a social media influencer network. Did I get that not, right? Is not that, really. Not really? Okay. Yeah. Not we'll get so, into it. We'll get into it. So it's um, sort of a laundromat and, and wash and fold for New York City, right? That's yeah. sort of, okay. All yeah. right. That, that's how media companies monetize today. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they need all the help they can get. So anyway, Jason, thanks so much for joining us. We really My appreciate pleasure. it. Thank you, um, So we thought... It'd be a good place to start. Um, you know, you are an, an expert in all things sort of digital influencer, and there's no better digital influencer success story perhaps than Donald Trump. This guy is a guy who was able to. I mean, he's a TV star. Was able to really use the internet, one could argue, and Twitter like extremely effectively in this election. So, as someone who who operates in this space more from the like the brand perspective, not politics, what was it like to observe? that phenomenon uh, from like from your perspective? Yeah, so politics aside, I would say that Donald Trump ran a more modern marketing campaign than 99% of brands do today. Um, he, first of all, didn't invest in much in TV at all and openly said that that was one of the keys to, to their success. He heavily invested in Facebook and also used Facebook data to not just inform the ads he was making and the content he was making, but actually to inform the messaging of his speeches on the campaign trail. Uh, that's something brands don't really do enough, like use their data to inform their actual product-making decisions. Uh, he was extremely authentic, and I would say Bernie Sanders was as well, which really is one of the keys to being successful online today is just, just how much people perceive it to be the real you and, and believe in what you're saying. Uh, and he, I mean, in terms of like purpose-driven marketing and having a cause that people could could gather behind. Obviously, the country was completely split, but um, he, he his messaging in in what his purpose was was very clear. Right, America first, jobs, jobs, jobs. Whether or not you believe that, like it, it was something that people could gather around. Do you think that to a certain extent, some of those like marketing decisions were kind of a happy accident because so much of the with the early you know, sort of Trump coverage was he was just getting wall-to-wall free media on, on cable TV. And some people have said that that really contributed to his rise. And and then, you know, he, he because you had so much free media on, on the airwaves, maybe he didn't need to spend as much on traditional television. Yeah. TV, uh, you know, that, that, that TV advertising is usually like the bedrock of a political campaign, but he didn't necessarily need to do that. Yeah, well, I would say a few things. One, like that's the like the common argument to saying that oh well he didn't invest in TV, but Hillary Clinton did invest in TV, a lot of money in TV, and those TV ads didn't go very far in terms of you know impact or cultural relevance or, or people discussing it a lot, right? In in the same way that 
his story became the news, right? That is really what's key here. It, it was earned coverage. Uh, the content became the story. The, um, the messaging became the story. And uh, I think while TV used to be the better act of a campaign, TV used to also have a lot more subscribers, a lot more viewership, especially in the key young audiences. And there's no question that that's eroding. So uh, I think the, the times are changing. So how does that apply to brands then? I mean, what do you think brands can learn from, from what Trump has done over the past few months? Um, find a way to be extremely authentic and, and have a voice that people really identify as yours. Obviously, companies like Nike have been doing that for a long time. Red Bull does that really, really well. Um, but, but authenticity is, is just critical. If you look across brands, media companies, celebrities, politicians, like the ones who are perceived as most authentic, whether you talk about Howard Stern, Kanye West, Miley Cyrus, Bernie Sanders, uh, Donald Trump, uh, these are the people who are the most successful people in the world, right? Something I wonder about, like, because that, that word is thrown around so much, like, isn't it like impossible to try to be authentic like isn't by definition you're trying to be authentic yeah like how i mean you you deal with with brands all, all the time that are and you're and you're you know sitting around and you're really trying to find like you know the the right way to communicate and what is authentic but is that process kind of fraught with issues like how how do you find that because i i think for all those people that you named the, the what makes them authentic is that they're not necessarily workshopping what should I say and maybe that was part of the problem you know with Hillary people felt that that maybe she was kind of searching for that authentic message yeah I mean it's not clear that they were searching or that they even felt that you need to be authentic in politics because you know pre-social media maybe you didn't need to be as much but um the idea of being authentic is rooted in like having values, things like core things that you believe in and making them really, really clear uh, and saying them over and over again and having them be the, the root of all of your messages and actions, right? Then there's also authenticity. So that's authenticity to you as a brand or as a person. There's authenticity to the audiences you're trying to reach. Like, what do they really, really care about, right? And then there's authenticity to the platforms that you're um, speaking on and creating content that's truly native to them and giving people what they want. So there's a few layers to it, but you're right. Like, you shouldn't have to try very hard to be authentic. It should be something that comes naturally. And if, if, you're not, if it's not coming naturally, it's not authentic. But I, I feel like, and we, we've talked about this previously on the podcast as well, but that seems like it would be easier for some brands than others. Um, you know, you mentioned sort of Red Bull, or well, not Red Bull, but like the GoPros of the world, for example. Like they have that sort of story to tell around, you know, extreme sports or like capturing an, an experience or whatever it might be. If you're trying to sell toothpaste or something, then perhaps that's a, a harder story to tell from a content perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's not easy for everyone to um, to tell a great story, but I think as as agencies and 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 brands, like you have to do that, right? Like that's what you have to do to succeed today. It's what everyone's always tried to do through their marketing and advertising, and now their their content. But um, if you don't have a story to tell, why should people believe in you? So, I mean, you mentioned with the with the election in terms of. The reliance on on television, obviously, that's like a a wider trend. You know, the I guess the the future of TV advertising or or like the TV cable ecosystem at large. We've talked about a lot. Like, what in, in your dealings do you see happening there? You know, in terms of your interaction with brands and when they when they're looking at how to deploy you know their budgets for TV versus you know some of the digital things that, that your agency might do. I think 
it's pretty tough to justify continued television investment in the world we live in today if you're looking at it really honestly and you're looking at data, right? Um, first of all, TV viewership is down, right? Olympics, MTV Awards, Oscars. But down um, from a huge, I mean, from a huge base. Like, there are still sure. millions and millions and millions of people watching television. And you're still paying for, for what you get, ultimately. Right. Um, yeah, but you could pay a lot less to get the same thing. Uh, in a place where maybe you could do it in a more targeted manner or get better data or ROI on it, right? But I think there's something even bigger, like you don't really know what you're getting when you invest in television, right? Even if people are watching TV, and when you come to, it comes to millennials, like it really is falling off a cliff. You guys have seen the charts when it comes to subscriptions. You've seen the, the time spent viewing TV going down so much. Um, but let's say people were watching. In today's world, when the commercial comes on, you're looking at your phone. Like, that is undeniable. Like, even if, if ratings weren't declining. Uh, so it's really hard to justify, to me, just looking at user behavior, especially in the important 18 to 34-year-old demographics, uh, to invest in that. Even when the program is on, you're looking at your phone, right? Like, But, like, even when you're on your phone now, scrolling through whatever, like, you're also looking at your phone at something else, right? Like, there, <laughs> all of these problems exist in digital, and that would be like the TV guy's sort of argument is that, yeah, okay, you, people were always cooking during the show and going to the bathroom during the commercials, and maybe they weren't seeing it. But there are still those sort of like viewability issues in digital. I mean, we talk about that all the time. There, there are all these same issues and waste and and bots and you know all the stuff we talked about on this podcast that exists in digital. So uh, it's not the same. Well, you can look at time spent viewing, right? Uh, view through rate shares, comments, and likes as proxy metrics to actually understand the the impact that your content is having. You can look at click-through rate. You can look at, um, you can have cookies and see, you know, post-view attribution, post-click attribution. There's a lot more you can get to to understand the true value of it, and the companies that are doing advertising really well now are really embracing those things. Um, you just have no idea when it comes to TV. There's no way to attribute the value you're getting. And so as less and less people watch TV as less and less people watch commercials uh, and as CPMs go up, like that's kind of the foundation of a bubble, right? Getting less and paying more for it. So I think um, the model is going to evolve. It already, it's evolving before our eyes, right? Like Disney's had, uh, I think like 25% of its market cap wiped off over the past year, largely due to ESPN subscribers going down so much. Right. right? ESPN, Investors got really jumpy because ESPN, that that also has to do with sort of the sports. Like ESPN has been thought of forever as immune to all the challenges in the pay TV universe because people have to get live sports. But I mean, it sounds like you think that that's, that's changing now because you can get, I don't know, maybe watch a Thursday night game on Twitter or NFL game. So like these, these things are chipping away. Yeah. Live was supposed to be the last bastion of TV, right? Like, oh, that's the one thing no one can ever touch live sports, but that's proven to be wrong this year. It it is going down, and um, you know everyone always says, "Well, you think TV that has is a long term trend." Then you don't think that's? I do think it's a long term trend. It, it's happening in way too many places, and there's way too many young people who aren't watching TV at all. And this whole argument, but TV has scale. I mean, what are we really? What do people even mean when they say that? Like, a great scale on TV is like 11 million people watching like a Thursday night football game. A billion people are using Facebook every day. Like, how can you make the scale argument? I mean, there's been some examples recently of advertisers saying that's more cost effective because obviously, if you're using Facebook to target really granularly, then yeah. you're paying for that. So maybe it is cheaper just to sort of right. go closer towards the spray and. Price sort of <laughs> yeah look I, I think the right way to think of it is um 
you know, sort of a full funnel marketing approach at like the top of the funnel. You want to go as big and broad as you can to reach as many people as you can with your message. And then as they get more and more interested in your product or purchasing, you're going to target them a little more granularly because they're worth more to you. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll have more with Jason right after this. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hi, my name is Jason Gay. I'm a sports columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, there's a sports columnist at the Wall Street Journal, buddy. I also have a podcast, The Free For All, where we talk a little sports and we talk about everything else as well. People from around the journal and the bigger universe talking about culture, life, politics, everything that's out there today. It's a free-ranging, fun conversation. I urge you to listen to it. And if you don't, I'm going to knock on your door tomorrow. Free For All. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back with Jason Stein. We, Jason, we, J- Jack and I talk about this all the time, just ourselves, but I know that you, you work with a lot of athletes and sort of in the sports realm as well, and we were just talking about like sports ratings. It seems like really interesting what's happening right now with leagues and their sort of digital rights. So the NFL recently kind of uh, revised some of its restrictions that it had against its own teams, posting like gifts of touchdown celebration or touchdown stuff like that so the nba is like famously very lax when it comes to letting people put like vines when i guess vine existed uh on twitter of of like great dunks like they're they're not very protective of their digital ip or things like that like how do you um how do you see that that market evolving because this is always like a constant argument of like how how much content should these big leagues um be you know just kind of giving up to the masses I think the cost of cultural relevance is giving up your your content in in bites to the masses. That's why the NBA ratings is one of the the few sports ratings that's been so strong this year. It's why it's become a, a global phenomenon of a sport. Like even you know, like in Europe, the Premier League ratings have been down this year. Um, in in China and across Europe, NBA ratings are very strong. Um, and you think that's because people like are on Twitter, on social media, and able to just be more in that conversation, like share gifts, and that the NBA isn't online policing that quite as much as, say, the NFL or, or other leagues. Certainly yeah. the Olympics are strong with that. Yeah, look, it, there's no better promotion for your sport, and there's no better way to be relevant than empowering the entire internet to create content around your sport. It's like the most effective form of marketing that there is. Uh, I think the NBA has been amazing at it. They've also been amazing at, at finding additional ways to monetize their core product. NBA League Pass is great. They did a deal with Tencent in China to have live streaming of NBA League Pass in all of the messaging apps, and that's a monstrous amount of of audience for them now. I think uh, the stat I read was that the Kobe Bryant final game last year had uh, 20 million simultaneous viewers uh, in Tencent in in their mobile apps in in China, which is monstrous. I mean, that's a huge, huge rating for one single NBA game. So coming back to the sort of measurement piece as well, uh, we kind of touched on Facebook already, but uh, obviously a big news story recently was that Facebook was miscounting, you know, some metrics uh, across its platform. Um, I know you guys obviously publish content across a range of platforms, all of which measure engagement and measure views slightly differently. Um, So for 
as measurable as everybody claims digital is? I mean, it seems like there are still some challenges when it comes to really sort of understanding the whole the whole landscape. Yeah, um, measurement is still a challenge, but it gets better and better every day, and it's better than it's ever been uh, in, in the past. I think the challenges that Facebook um, had, and you and I went back and forth on, on Twitter a little bit about this, um, were were certainly not good, but those, that data was always available to agencies, and, and as an agency that creates and distributes content for, for brands and, and buys media, like we weren't relying on that metric or using raw data to determine it. You should never let the platforms grade their homework, as, as everyone says, but you don't have to. You, sh- you should use um, the raw data to do it yourself. You should use third parties to do it. And at the end of the day, like these are just proxy metrics that we're talking about that the platforms provide you, things like view-through rate and clicks and stuff like that. The only thing that matters is ROI, right? Like third-party brand lift studies, product awareness studies, actual purchases that you can link back to sale. Those are the critical things you need to really be measuring, and those are not things the platform can measure. That's just your own revenue, really, right? So um, I think measurement is something that everyone has to take seriously, but um, a lot of the issues that that have come up were um, a bit overblown. And look, the big media agencies... Um, the traditional agencies want any leverage they can against Facebook. So yeah, to come out and say, yeah, yeah, so to come out and say like, hey, we have an issue with Facebook, and then make them come come crawling back and fix things for them and give them a couple discounts on on some things is is in their best interest, right? So, so you don't think Facebook should sort of open up a little bit more from a, a measurement perspective? No, I think it would be good if if they did, and I think they are right. They've they've announced all these this, this new council. They have these many third party measurement tools that you can use, and I think the more they encourage that, the better for everyone. It sort of taps into a, a wider kind of like period of it seems like mistrust and and transparency in the advertising business. I mean, we we reported even earlier today um, that the Department of Justice is looking into uh, practices in the I guess the post production of of that right. It was like sort of post yeah, like agency production work yeah like dire- the agencies were directing or the the doj is investigating agencies directing business to their own in-house production agencies as opposed to ever other ones but anyway this taps into like wider mistrust perhaps between marketers and and agencies and you know there was that big report earlier this year the ana uh report and i'm curious like as someone who you know who runs an agency what what have your dealings with clients been like are, are they are they asking all these sorts of questions about transparency do you, i mean am i mischaracterizing this feeling of mistrust or, or is it is it there we haven't run into that i don't know if it's because we're you know we're five years old um but you know we're 320 people now we have full service agency we have media buying we have full production and we have um an actual media company right where like advertisers invest so you would think like those are our places rife for potential conflict of interest but We've just been very upfront. Like, this is our offering. We do all these things in one place. And um, it's more of a statement of interest and a statement of doing it this way with us. And uh, if you're super transparent about it and your fees are, are less than all of these traditional fees, then I think you don't run in, into issues. But uh, I th- you have to be honest. You have to be an open book. That's sort of just like a, a good business practice. And I think if you do that, you don't run into those problems. So a couple of questions there. I mean, you mentioned that you have a media property. That's Cycle. Cycle, yeah. Right. Um, so, I mean, in a sense, I mean, you could compare that to what, like, a vice is doing, for example. It's sort of a yeah. hybrid between, you know, agency and distribution. Exactly right. Um, and then you might say that sort of traditional publishers are trying to do the same thing. I mean, 
you know, we had Bloomberg on last week talking about how they're growing their yeah. sort of agency services business. The Wall Street Journal has its own sort of custom studio. Um, so how do you see that sort of competition between, I, I don't know if we even call it between agencies and publishers anymore, but I guess the blurring of, of those lines. I think every agency needs to um, become a, a media business and every media business needs to become an agency. I think media and advertising are becoming the same thing. And um, that's why we launched uh, a fully distributed media company in January. We get 100 million content views a month now, almost all video views. And um, it's been very successful for us. Media buying agencies and, and clients want to uh, transact in, in a way where they're going to get guaranteed reach and free branded content, right? Uh, it, it's a good offering. But uh, there's huge competition, right? New York Times just bought two agencies. Vice owns two agencies. Why wouldn't an agency start to launch media companies if you're an expert in content creation and distribution? Um, I think you have to do that if you want to succeed. So to what extent, you guys were required by uh, Wasserman Media, right? Yeah, we were required by Wasserman, yep. Um, They're sort of coming from the the sports management, sports sponsorship sort of arena. Yep. Um, So, I mean, is that sort of that combination that you're talking about there? Obviously, you have access to to talent, and that talent has access to an audience of its own. You guys bring this sort of content production capabilities. I mean, is that what that acquisition was about in in your mind? Yeah. I mean, we always always had this vision in mind to... um to use all our expertise to create something bigger than, than the sum of the parts. And, um, you know, having access to 2,000 of the top professional athletes in the world to create and distribute content around or to pair with brands is, is a powerful offering. Um, but uh, Cycle sort of become its own thing with, with legs of its own and its own voice and brand and out, out in culture with a lot of our videos this year and, and some, some good press. So um, I think it became something bigger than we thought, but that was always the, the initial thinking, too. When you know when you talk about sort of like media and advertising converging, I mean as a as a consumer, that raises a lot of I don't know potentially problematic areas, right? Like you know that maybe as just as a reporter, like that kind of concept does make me make me nervous, right? Because we'd like to think that you know what what we do is is clearly different than than advertising, but increasingly it seems like. Um, Maybe consumers don't know the difference, and to, I mean, is that a big problem? And and is that something that you think about? Um, I don't know how big of a problem it is because of how much information exists to get honest, like reviews of, of products from your friends or from the internet, or or just by searching through user generated content, um, Yelp reviews, and and so forth. I think um, it's just the reality of what's going on, and. Look, after what we just went through with this election, you can't really point me to like objective media and journalism anymore. Like, it's just, it's like well, I don't know that that exists I anymore. Mean, you're here, like, <laughs> I mean, I, I look, look I, I think, I think a, a, what you guys do is is probably one of the the few um, instances in which you you can be truly objective, like business journalism, technology journalism. Um, it's it's a little different, right? Um, but you guys aren't really, you know, you're talking about trends in the marketplace as a, as opposed to like. Should you buy this? But, like, if I'm reading something, when I read, like, a theater review in the New York Times, like, I read that because I do want to know what Ben Brantley has to say about that play because I trust his opinion or or at least I'm interested in it. But if I'm, like, traversing the internet uh, and I see, like, a a piece of branded content for some Broadway show and I don't know... Well, you should know. It should be very clearly labeled if it's branded. I mean, it should be, but we... It isn't always clear. I mean, I, I just... It just seems like... 
this is something that consumers should be. I mean, the FTC cares about it, <laughs> so like consumers yeah. maybe should be worried about it, or their their disclosure needs to be better. I mean, these are I think big questions that well, still swirl. On well, my, my my me saying I'm okay with it was on the assumption that it was being disclosed. That it was advertising, <laughs> obviously, yeah, um, yeah. I don't think you, you should, people should should be tricking anyone. But does it depend on the type of content as well? As in. I don't know if it's more sort of entertainment or sports focused. Then maybe the the different differentiated the differentiation there is less important than, than like a news article, hard news yeah. story, or yeah, no no question about that. Um, and I would even like go a step further and like when I say media and advertising are the same thing, like I would I think a Netflix series is is a great ad for Netflix. Like House of Cards is the best marketing for Netflix that exists, right? It it tells you like. Oh, I'm glad I keep paying for this every month. I get this good experience out of it. Or, oh, I don't sign up, and everyone's talking about House of Cards. I better go sign up now, right? Like, right. It does. It has the same exact impact and purpose as an ad. The, the goal is to get you to to purchase something and be loyal to a brand. So, sort of shifting gears for a little bit, we we're talking about. I know you guys take a, a platform approach, and we talk a lot about Facebook and some of the other platforms. But I'm curious, like, what your uh, dealings have been with with Snapchat. It's it's, I'm sure, growing for lots of your clients and, and something that they're extremely interested in. So, um, you know, what, what what has that been been like to you know to to work on that platform? Um, we've had a lot of great experiences with the platform as far as you know being advertisers on it and, and placing buys in it. Um, they've been good to work with. I think, like most um, sort of fast growing startupy type cultures, uh, it reminds me a lot of what Twitter and Facebook were like when they first started introducing advertising, um, whereas, um, you know, today they're like very, very organized and buttoned up and, right. you know, they send you cupcakes every time you have a meeting with them. Uh, Snapchat is, is a little bit more sort of like flybys of the seat of their pants, but um, they're delivering, right? So I think that that's all that matters. Um, what I think is going to be really interesting is... Um, this pivot to being a camera company, right? There's a lot of talk about very, very, very strongly being a camera company. Um, it's it's sort of a weird like brand positioning for them because it's like it seems it well, seems antiquated, right? Because it's it, limiting. Yeah, it does. Because when I think of a camera, I mean a camera does one thing, like a phone does a lot more, or a media company, or a, I mean maybe I'm. Or is it just not cool to be a social media platform or a messaging platform anymore? Yeah. Is that is that cooler to be uh, like have a pair of sunglasses that can take a picture? I, I, I don't know the answers to any of these questions, <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you this. I think um, Snapchat's going to have a very, very successful IPO. They have an amazing PR machine. They have the media wrapped around their finger. Hey. You know, uh, look, any, any, anytime they announce <laughs> a Discover sure. partner, you guys write like 19 articles about them. Everyone does. Well, it's, um, and, and you know, good for them. It's, it's what people care and they want to read right now, but... Um, so, so yeah, they're going to have a successful IPO. They have a lot of new salespeople. They're generating a ton of revenue. I think the question is, where are they year after IPO? Can they can they grow users from here? That's the thing because we talk about that all the time. Like they're, we we put them in the same conversations when we talk about platforms of you know Facebook and Google and stuff. They're t- they're tiny. I mean, they're going to which is our fault to be fair. We're the one that yeah that brings them up in revenue yeah, yeah, to yeah. Facebook. But. This is true. Also true. <laughs> I mean, look, their revenue, I think they said it's going to be like $350 million this year, and, and they're going to IPO at like a, around $35 billion valuation or something like that, plus whatever they pop to after the, the first day. I mean, that's like, 
you know, more than 100x revenue. And I think it that's a way, way more of a multiple than Facebook gets or Google gets or an Apple gets. So if you're Facebook or Google, like how scared are you? Like how much is a ex- of an existential threat does a Snapchat pose to Facebook right right now? It's, it's an existential threat, no question. And that's why Instagram has made so many changes this year. And it's actually... Um, at the risk of advocating for copying, it, it's actually a stroke of brilliance, right? <laughs> yeah, like, it looks like it's working. <laughs> they've wrapped up everything into one app now, right? They have this like raw um, stories at the top. They have premium content in the feed. They have the explore section. They're building out messaging more and more. They're going to integrate uh, the lenses. They now have live video as well. So it's been pretty smooth integration of so many things. Uh, but that's why I say, like, if Snapchat's saying this about the camera company now, you have to think that they already are planning on potentially not having user growth after you know, six months to a year and, and becoming something else. Well, when, when Discover launched, I know that we were expecting, you know, when are they going to open up the platform to everyone? And it's pretty clear now that the, they view that as a very premium or, or at least limited uh, experience for, you know, there aren't that many publishers on it. They've been putting more, you know, NFL, NBA types of content. I guess you might consider that like higher end stuff. So they, they do, it's not going to... I don't know. We'll, I mean, we'll see. But it doesn't seem like they're going to, you know, every media company under the sun is going to be publishing into the Snapchat app. Yeah, and I think that's a big challenge for Snapchat, actually, because the more media companies you have on your platform, the more users you have, the more people, the more companies that are directing large audiences to use your platform is something that's worked really well for Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So um, we'll see what they do with that. They certainly have not been open to, to opening that up in a bigger way, but... It also doesn't have scale right now, right? Discovery doesn't bring scale to to anyone, really. Even all the users of Discover are not going to compare with, uh, you know, any of the big media properties on on Facebook or anything. Is there an argument? I know we've had people on this podcast suggest that you know Snapchat is more comparable in a way to to a TV company than a social network, and you know that sort of more limited model has worked well for the TV business. So. Right. Even know, the idea, even the idea that the, you know that we reported that they're leaning towards, um, you know, get pay, basically just paying media companies for content as opposed to having a, a an ad revenue share model that they might be favoring that in well, some of their dealings. Facebook does that now too, right? They're yeah. paying a lot of well, media companies sure. for for live content, uh, and I think all of the but in the whole but it, it seems like Facebook's model in the long term would be more favoring the ad revenue share. Um, yeah, until like, until the NFL rights come up, and, you know, <laughs> when they want NFL rights. Yeah. Um, I, I think everything is up for grabs in terms of paying for content as as these platforms are like the new TV networks of, yeah. of the future when it comes to scale. But um, I don't I don't think it's fair to say Snapchat's anything like TV. Like it's literally nothing like TV. Um, but I will say that maybe you can compare them to a GoPro. And if you're being really, really bullish, as as some younger people in our office are, uh, they're like an Apple in the sense that they're creating a product that could potentially have software built into it uh, and as a way to interact with the world. GoPro and Apple, those companies have done quite different uh, in the public markets. So I mean, that's the big question. Like, yeah. <laughs> where, does, where does Snap, the camera company, end up on that spectrum. Do you it's see a, them a, as a potential hardware company? That, I, I mean, I know that they are technically already with spectacles. Spectacles, I was going to call them glasses. But. It seems that their focus and goals and aspirations are to be a, um, a hardware company with obviously with, with software integrated into it, but a camera company is by definition a hardware company, and they're very openly and brazenly coming out and saying, like, this is who we are and this is what we do, even though our revenue comes from our, our, uh, our app today. So... 
that's why I think it's so fascinating to see where they go. I mean, if they're signaling this now, there's a reason for it. And they must have some big plans and, and potentially pivots post-IPO for what they become. Yeah. What's your view on messaging apps more broadly? Because it feels like, I don't know, in the past couple of years, like they kind of had a moment. Everybody was talking about messaging apps. Um, I know you for a while were sort of bullish on them. Um, you know, there were bots like Facebook introduced messenger bots, uh, but they, they don't really seem to have taken off. Is it just too early or I don't know. How do you see that evolving? Well, well apps as, as a, um, a medium for people to communicate on have, have really taken off in, in a big way um, where they haven't taken off as much as people might have thought is in terms of advertisers using them to reach large audiences. Uh, but I think that will happen. Uh, these, these are apps with hundreds of millions of people, billions of people using them on a daily basis. Uh, and a lot of data around them when you look at something like Messenger. Um, and these are places where you can actually monetize more, right? So Facebook's sort of at capacity on ad load right now, right? They have to monetize Messenger. And once Instagram's ad load is at capacity too, like the next property with a billion users is Messenger, right? And, and WhatsApp. So I think you'll absolutely see this happening. And it's going to be effective. Like email blasts are effective because you're reaching someone with like a message that they want yeah. to receive and sign up for the CMO today newsletter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I love that. We should talk more about email. Yeah, like we really should because it's still it's like the tried and true it method. Still works. Yeah, it, it it's a good effective way of, of reaching audiences, and I think Messenger will be the same way. Except you'll have more dynamic content, more ability to interact quickly. Um, bots, if if that's something that you think is is good. Um, but uh, it's like the it's early reinvention of like that aim bot smarter child that like ever did you ever interact? No, I didn't. All right, well, I guess it's uh, you're too old. Um, all right, well, Jason, thank you so much for for joining us. We really appreciate it. We'll talk about bots and email. I guess next week we'll yep. come back. I'm going to skip that one, but thank you guys. So much. <laughs> all right, thanks, Jason, and thanks everyone for listening to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.